This program first aired on July 11, 2021. It celebrates freedom and the great American freedom songs and their origins. Enjoy and a belated happy 4th of July. This is the American Tapestry Project. where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome, welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Before we begin today, a short housekeeping note. Occasionally, we'll be interrupted by the sound of an old-fashioned school bell to signal a sidebar, a look at a special topic. Today's sidebars include, who is Francis Scott Key? Who is John Philip Sousa? Who is George M. Cohen in Irving Berlin? Who is Kate Smith? The bell, the bell signals a sidebar we'll probe. Today's episode is the second Surveying American Music, Celebrating American Freedom, Celebrating American Liberty. As we discovered last month, it's not quite as simple as some like to think. American freedom, American liberty, topics both glorious and troubled. What do they mean? A week or so ago, in a seaside resort town, in front of a store selling t-shirts with all sorts of political slogans, ban idiots, not guns, America, love it or leave it, and multiple versions of the Gadsden flag, don't tread on me, stood a man, stood a man sporting a t-shirt proclaiming American liberty, American freedom. The man seemed pleasant enough. I wanted to ask him what he thought those words meant, but before I could, he was swept away by a covey of people I assume were his family. American liberty, American freedom, what do they mean? Well, We could go all philosophical here and say, liberty means the absence of external restraint, and that freedom is a byproduct of liberty. Absent external or coercive restraint, one is at liberty. That is, one now possesses freedom, which frees you, empowers you, frees you to choose. Choose what? Whatever. In some, then, liberty is the absence of external control restraining you. You are free from external control, which gives you the freedom to choose. To choose what? In the political realm, your leaders. In the commercial realm, this soap as opposed to some other soap. In the personal realm, this job, this spouse, this life. It gives you the freedom to be you, or, as Sammy Davis Jr. sang, I gotta be me. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. What else can I be? So, liberty means no prior restraint and freedom means the power to choose. Fair enough. But what happens to responsibility? To whom or for whom am I responsible beyond myself? Do I have any responsibilities to society, to family, to other people? Where's the balance? What happens to the turtles happy together? So happy together. 
Troubling the issue is the question, where does my freedom end and where does my neighbor's freedom begin? Or, more pointedly, where does my liberty end and your liberty begin? How do we negotiate that borderland? Who decides? On what basis? One could argue that in America today, the balance is tipped too far to individual freedom at the expense of our neighbor's liberty. We'll come back to that question in future episodes, but, as we've repeatedly said, the American story's defining motif is the interwoven stories of freedom and liberty, of those included and those excluded, and of the struggle for inclusion by those excluded's appeal to those very ideals, American liberty, American freedom those very ideals embedded in America's founding documents, and, of course, the ongoing experiment in democratic, that's a small d, in democratic self-government, all the while expanding the meaning of the we in we the people by absorbing an incredible array of people from all the peoples of the world. That at times it gets fractious, sometimes violently fractious, well, that should surprise no one. It's a noble adventure, and the journey continues. What is the American Tapestry Project? The American Tapestry Project seeks to find the pattern of American culture created by the many threads of our many stories. Threads, which are what St. Augustine meant when he said, a nation is a multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their loves. As a result, we have to ask ourselves, beyond our love of personal freedom, what do we love in common? More than some might think, but we all need to be reminded of the common objects of our love. Today's common objects of our love are American patriotic music celebrating, celebrating American liberty, American freedom, on America's freedom holidays. The 4th of July was last Sunday, that metaphorical marker of summer's midpoint celebrating the United States' founding and freedom's triumph, a celebration awash in patriotic, spirit-lifting music. As we did last month, I thought it an apt time to continue our exploration of patriotic American songs singing about those common objects of our love. Those common objects of our love, St. Augustine said, said bind a people into a nation. In episode number 11, we looked at Taps, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Lift Every Voice and Sing, Hail Columbia, America, My Country, Tis of Thee, and Yankee Doodle. You can find that episode on WQLN's website and other podcast sites. Today, today we'll look at several more, but the catalog of songs is so large we could spend the entire summer listening to what Bob Marley, in another context, to what Bob Marley called the sounds of freedom. Everyone knows these songs, or at least most of them, but everyone reacts to them in different ways. A gush of patriotic pride, or... Maybe, taking a knee, bowing to the gap between the ideals of which they sing and the reality which some still endure. Common to all of them is the love of home and the shared experience of being American, exhorting all of us to be true, to be true to the better angels of our nature. Today, we'll ask, answer, and listen to Who Wrote the Star-Spangled Banner? And what is it about its third stanza that has some wanting it dropped as the national anthem? Which child of immigrant parents wrote Stars and Stripes Forever in the Washington Post March? And which other composer, an immigrant himself, wrote God Bless America? Who was Woody Guthrie? Who was the Yankee Doodle Dandy who wrote Over There and It's a Grand Old Flag? And who, as Boston.com said, was the gay feminist badass from Massachusetts who wrote America the Beautiful? 
We'll also ask, which of these love songs to America describes it honestly and completely? None? All? Or all of them, but maybe none of them completely? One or two? Which? I'll argue all of them, but none of them completely. But taken together, they sing of America, of thee I sing. That's today on the American Tapestry Project. A quick question. How many national anthems has America had? Officially, only one, the Star-Spangled Banner. But there have been several other contenders. Hail Columbia, America, My Country, Tis of Thee, and off and on, God Bless America and America the Beautiful have had their supporters. So too has Lift Every Voice and Sing, and on the odd occasion, even Yankee Doodle has had its moments. How many is that? Six or seven, depending on how you count. was a clip from Hail Columbia, which, for most of the 19th century, was the unofficial anthem, but it faded after the Civil War when America, my country tis of thee, took precedence until the Star-Spangled Banner's formal adoption. By the way, what is a national anthem? Interestingly, it's not an ancient custom. It only dates to the 19th century. National anthems symbolize a country's history and traditions. Usually they are marches, but in some countries they are more ornate with operatic overtones. In others, only fanfares, a short flourish typically played by trumpets. Used to celebrate national holidays and festivals, anthems have also been widely adopted to open sporting events and other public gatherings.
Most people have forgotten this, or maybe never knew it, but the song, The Star-Spangled Banner, isn't the actual Star-Spangled Banner. It's a song about the Star-Spangled Banner, which is actually a flag modeled after the U.S. flag. Known as the Great Garrison Flag, it flew over Fort McHenry and Baltimore Harbor as the Battle of Baltimore raged during the War of 1812. The story is well known. How the battle raged through the night of September 13, 1814. All was thought lost, but at the dawn's early glow, on September 14th, the flag still flew. The sight of the fluttering flag inspired lawyer and amateur poet Francis Scott Key to write a poem, The Defense of Fort McHenry. As a result, the song that celebrates a flag began its life as a poem. Key witnessed the bombardment of Fort McHenry from the vantage point of a British warship upon which he was held prisoner. He had approached the British on a mission approved by President Madison seeking an exchange of prisoners, but because he overheard British battle plans, he was detained until after the battle. Throughout the night, he could not tell how the battle was progressing until he saw the flag still flying in the morning light. The song was put to music by Key's brother-in-law, Joseph Nicholson. First publicly performed in October 1814, Thomas Carr, proprietor of a Baltimore music store, tweaked the arrangement, Washington Irving published it in his Analectic magazine, and the song became increasingly popular. It was played at patriotic events, at military installations, and other popular venues, including baseball games. Although some argued it was difficult to sing, it became the national anthem on March 4, 1931, when President Herbert Hoover signed it into law. Ninety years later, it still generates controversy, the least of which, the least of which is that it is hard to sing. The most serious concern involves the third stanza, which, in 2017, caused the California chapter of the NAACP to ask Congress to remove it as the national anthem. Everyone knows, or kind of knows, the first stanza. In fact, I suspect that almost everyone assumes that it is the only stanza. Actually, the poem is four stanzas long, although the last three are almost never recited or sung. I, I personally can't recall ever hearing the entire song sung. I'm all but certain you know the justly famous first stanza. Oh, say can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight, or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's the third stanza that causes controversy. And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion, a home and a country, should leave us no more? Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps' pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. Who was Francis Scott Key? Like many in American history, Francis Scott Key was a complicated man. Allegedly, he opposed slavery, but he was a slave owner. As a district attorney, he prosecuted abolitionists. He supported the American Colonization Society, which advocated sending freed slaves to Africa. It's the third stanzas, Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps' pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave. It's the third stanza that generates controversy. 
Key is alluding to the support some slaves, some freed blacks, and some laboring white men on the Baltimore docks offered the British. Hireling refers to those who work for wages, which many early 19th century elitists saw as wage slavery. However you parse the line, it brings into America's anthem topics many want to forget, slavery and racism. Unfortunately, for those who deny that racism is the virus in the American dirt, the evidence is everywhere. That huge topic, that very huge topic, is a topic for another day. Still, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle what to do with the anthem. That third stanza presents a challenge, but common practice now for almost a century has eliminated it. For almost everyone, the anthem is the first stanza. It has become part of the wallpaper of American life. But, As some people point out, people do change their wallpaper to accommodate changing times and changing taste. The first stanza, the first stanza is inspiring, if difficult to sing. Difficult it might be, but I find cringeworthy the current practice of every ephemeral famous for their Andy Warhol 15 minutes, every ephemeral singer giving the song their own quirky rendition. Granted, there are more melodic songs, but... If national anthem we want, then sing it straight, or not at all. While probably not a contender for the national anthem, here is Stars and Stripes Forever. was John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, which, by an act of Congress in 1987, is the official March of the United States. A march, according to Merriam-Webster, is a musical composition that is usually in duple or quadruple time, with a strongly accentuated beat designed or suitable to accompany marching. Simple, actually. 
Marshall in Spirit, Stars and Stripes Forever is unabashedly patriotic, as a quick glance at its rarely sung lyrics illustrates. Other nations may deem their flags the best and cheer them with fervid elation, but the flag of the North and the South and the West is the flag of flags, the flag of freedom's nation. Hurrah for the flag of the free. May it wave as our standard forever. Sousa wrote it on Christmas Day, 1896, on board an ocean liner returning from a European vacation with his wife Jane. He had just learned of the death of David Blakely, manager of the Sousa band. Distraught, the sight of the waving American flag lifted his spirits. He sought to capture that spirit in his song. First performed near Philadelphia on May 14, 1897, it received an ardent response. For a song so strongly identified with patriotism, it has a curiously parallel and somewhat surprising alternative use. In theaters, circuses, and other venues, it is called the Disaster March. Dating from the early 20th century, when theaters still had live bands, the song was played to signal an emergency to theater staff so they could lead patrons to safety. Who was John Philip Sousa? If one of the major threads in the American Tapestry Project is the immigrant's tale, the immigrant's tale chronicling immigrant contributions to American society, then our next two composers are shining examples, John Philip Sousa and Irving Berlin. A Portuguese-American, John Philip Sousa was the son of immigrants. His father was Portuguese and his mother Bavarian. Known as the American March King, Sousa was born in Washington, D.C. in 1854. Sousa's 136 military marches include The Stars and Stripes Forever, Semper Fidelis, The Washington Post March, and numerous others. Sousa, who at 14 enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1868 as an apprentice in the Marine Band, Sousa wrote Semper Fidelis in the late 1880s at the behest of President Chester Arthur, who wanted something more emotionally resonant than Hail to the Chief. Semper Fidelis, part of a trio of compositions Sousa created for Arthur, eventually became recognized as the official march of the U.S. Marine Corps. As I am sure you know, Semper Fidelis means always faithful. Sousa also wrote the Washington Post March.
Sousa composed the Washington Post March in 1889, and, before you ask, yes, it has a direct connection to the Washington Post newspaper. In 1889, ownership of the paper changed hands, and the new owners sponsored a number of promotional contests to increase readership. One was a contest celebrating awards presented by the Washington Post Amateur Authors Association, a club, a club created by the Post to encourage district school children to write. The owners asked Sousa, by then already renowned as America's March King, the owners asked him to write something inspirational to be played at the awards ceremony. Sousa wrote, the Washington Post March. It was first performed on June 15, 1889, on the grounds of the Smithsonian before an audience of 25,000 people. So, the Washington Post March began its long career as a sort of over-the-top commercial jingle. If John Philip Sousa was the king of marches, then Irving Berlin was the king of pop. Of a white Christmas Like no business I know Everything about it is appealing Everything the traffic will allow Nowhere could you get that happy feeling When you are stealing that extra bow There's no people If you're blue and you don't know where to go to Why don't you go where Harlem Putting on the rim Maybe trouble ahead But while there's moonlight and music And love and romance Let's face the music and dance Before the fiddle Heaven I'm in heaven And my heart beats so That I can hardly speak and I seem to find the happiness I see When we're out together Dancing cheek to cheek Yes, heaven I'm in heaven Who was Irving Berlin? A Jewish immigrant Irving Berlin was born Israel Berlin in 1888 in Russia. Fleeing the frequent anti-Jewish pogroms terrorizing Russian Jews, Berlin's family immigrated to America in the 1890s. Landing on New York City's Lower East Side, Berlin's family was part of that massive late 19th and early 20th century influx of immigrants that despite the bigotry of anti-immigrationists, immigrants who enriched American culture. Having worked as a street singer in his teens, Berlin's first published song sang of another immigrant, Marie from sunny Italy. On the published sheet, his name was misspelled as I Berlin. He kept the name and became Irving Berlin.
As the medley beginning this segment sounded, Berlin was one of the early 20th century's greatest Tin Pan Alley figures. 1911's Alexander's Ragtime Band was his first major hit. Name a popular song of the early 20th century? Berlin probably wrote it. He practically created the American Songbook. A review of his hits would make a great American Tapestry episode unto itself. Just his major hits include How Deep is the Ocean, Blue Skies, Always, There's No Business Like Show Business, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody, Easter Parade, White Christmas, Putting on the Ritz, Heat Wave, Let's Face the Music and Dance, Preferably by Dancing, Cheek to Cheek. And, of course, he wrote God Bless America. Berlin wrote God Bless America in 1918 during World War I while serving in the Army, but he did not use it in a musical show he was preparing to aid the war effort. With Hitler on the rise, in 1938 Berlin revived God Bless America as a peace song. Kate Smith featured it on an Armistice Day broadcast of her highly popular radio show. Berlin, Berlin added an introduction that Smith always used. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in a solemn prayer. Here is Kate Smith singing, God Bless America. What was the reception? Mixed. Anti-Semitic bigots like the Ku Klux Klan opposed it because Berlin was Jewish. In 1943, Smith sang it in Berlin's patriotic musical, This is the Army. Berlin gave the song's royalties to the God Bless America Fund for redistribution to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts in New York City. During the 1950s, the song was a regular feature on Kate Smith's NBC television series. 
God Bless America had fans on both the political left and right. It was used at both 1950s-era civil rights and organized labor rallies. In the 1960s, Christian conservatives began to use it to oppose America's growing secular liberalism and to support the Vietnam War. In the 1970s, the Philadelphia Flyers played Smith's version at home hockey games, which spurred other sports teams to do the same. A more melodious tune than the Star-Spangled Banner, at times advocates have promoted God Bless America as an alternative national anthem. That has faded as Smith herself has now come under attack for having sung racist songs back in the 1930s. Who was Kate Smith? Born in Greenville, Virginia in 1907, Kate Smith was known as the First Lady of Radio. Most famous for singing God Bless America, Smith's career in radio, television, and recording lasted more than five decades. Although her radio career peaked in the 1940s, when she was known as the Songbird of the South, she had a second career on television in the 1950s, and a third career singing God Bless America before Philadelphia Flyers games in the 1970s. And recorded versions of the song were frequently played at other sporting events well into the 21st century. Smith's father owned a newspaper distributorship in Washington, D.C., where as a child, Smith began singing in church socials. By the time she was eight, she was singing for troops during World War I. She never had a singing lesson. A large, portly woman, Smith got her break at Keith's Theater in Boston when a producer saw her and signed her for a review he was preparing in New York City. A New York Times review mentioned her girth, but also noted she could belt out tunes and was one of the season's hot newcomers. Later, Smith made her mark singing and hit the deck, where she won acclaim singing Hallelujah as a mammy in blackface. Almost a hundred years later, this would come back to bite her. In the 1930s, she starred with Burt Lahr in a review in which she was the butt of Lahr's jokes about her weight. Ted Collins put her on the radio in 1931, and the rest, as they say, is history. In Smith's own words, I'm big, and I sing, and boy, when I sing, I sing all over. Her list of hits included Dream a Little Dream of Me, River, Stay Way from My Door, The White Cliffs of Dover, The Last Time I Saw Paris, I Don't Want to Walk Without You, Seems Like Old Times, and dozens more. Her theme song was... The Kate Smith Hour was a leading radio program from 1937 to 1945. In the 1950s, she had several series on TV, beginning with NBC in 1950 and later on on ABC and CBS. Among the classic episodes was a rare American TV appearance by Josephine Baker, the fabled African-American chanteuse of 1920s Paris. Legendary for her performances of God Bless America, Smith has become controversial in the 20-teens by the rediscovery of some racist songs she recorded in 1931, such as That's Why Darkies Are Born and Pickaninny Heaven. The songs were part of the culture of the 1930s. Smith's defenders argue that That's Why Darkies Are Born was meant to be satirical and was also sung by celebrated African-American singer and civil rights activist Paul Robeson. Smith, 
1945 radio address on CBS advocated for racial justice, saying, Race hatred, social prejudices, religious bigotry are diseases that eat away the fibers of peace. She insisted we needed to tolerate one another to achieve peace. Is Kate Smith an unfair victim of cancel culture? Maybe. Times change. Satire is a tricky thing. When the point is missed, you can get the opposite reaction from what you intended. People should be seen in the light of their entire life. The case of Kate Smith underscores the need to be mindful of how one's words have the power to hurt. Smith, who died in 1986, can't defend herself. Although the songs of 1931, ambiguous as they might be, although those songs are still hurtful, over the entire course of her life, Kate Smith made more right calls than not. In the 1940s and 1950s and even the 1960s, God Bless America spoke to all Americans, on the left and on the right, but it annoyed Woody Guthrie. Annoyed by its overpopularity, what he thought its self-satisfied lyrics, and its ignoring of the Depression era's less fortunate excluded from America's blessings, as a rejoinder, originally titled God Blessed America for Me, in 1940, Guthrie wrote, This land is your land. Listeners to the American Tapestry Project have heard snippets of This Land is Your Land multiple times. I toyed with using it as a recurring theme. Chose Dvorak instead. Still, the spirit of the song is the spirit of the American Tapestry. America, America belongs to all of us. Woody Guthrie inspired the entire folk music movement of the 1950s and 1960s. He impacted everyone from Pete Seeger and the Weavers to Joan Baez, but probably no one more than Bob Dylan, who first appeared on the American scene as a folk troubadour singing songs of protest, before he reinvented himself as the rock star he always wanted to be. He once said all he ever wanted to be was Buddy Holly, and then reinvented himself again and again and again. But this isn't about Bob Dylan, and it isn't about Arlo Guthrie, son of Woody, and maybe the most famous one-hit wonder in American music history, having made a career of sorts out of one song, Alice's Restaurant, which, by the way, I think an inimitable classic. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. I saw Arlo perform it at Blossom Music Center in 1968. But this is about Dad. This is about Woody Guthrie. Born in Oklahoma, Woody Guthrie didn't write about the American West as it had been romanticized in the American imagination by dime novels, movies, and songs since Buffalo Bill Cody's 19th century Wild West show. Instead, Guthrie set out to tell the stories of common people working hard to make a life for themselves amid the real West, often challenging and sometimes unforgiving realities. Raised by a middle-class family, when his mother's illness splintered the family, Guthrie left home to work as a migrant farmer. At 15, he began to travel the country by freight train, inadvertently beginning the creation of the myth of the itinerant folk singer emulated by untold numbers during the 1960s. With his ever-present harmonica and guitar, he sang for other migrants and drifters the country folk songs he had learned at home. 
By the late 30s, he had landed in California where he appeared on radio singing traditional folk songs. In his performances, he also included songs he had written while wandering the country with hobos, the Depression-era poor, and what we would now call the homeless. A champion of the common people, Guthrie's songs reflected both a deep love of country and a strong commitment to ordinary working people. Written while he lived in New York, This Land is Your Land celebrated America's beauty, celebrated America's beauty and Guthrie's belief that the nation belonged to all the people, not merely the rich and powerful. We've played clips of it before, but here is the complete, This Land is Your Land. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. As I went a-walkin' that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway, saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps to the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts. All around me a voice was sounding, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, then I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, and the dust clouds rolling. The voice was chanting as the fog was lifting, this land was made for you and me. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, then I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, the dust clouds rolling, the voice coming chanting. Fog was lifting, this land was made for you and me. Who said, Ladies and gentlemen, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, Yankee Doodle do or die. A real-life nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. George M. Cohen, the original Yankee Doodle Dandy. Of course, in that clip, that was James Cagney singing Yankee Doodle Dandy from the 1941 film of the same name. Who was George M. Cohen? He was the Andrew Lloyd Webber, the Stephen Sondheim, the Richard Rogers, the Oscar Hammerstein of the early 20th century. Born in 1878, he was the king of Broadway from roughly 1900 until just before World War II in the 1940s. 
He was an actor, singer, popular songwriter, playwright, and producer of musical comedies. He was the original Yankee Doodle Dandy. His family were vaudevillians, the famous Four Cohens, composed of his mother, his father, his sister, and himself. Vaudevillians. What's that? Vaudeville was the most popular entertainment format of the 19th and early 20th century, before radio and television swamped live performances. A vaudeville was a live performance composed of a series of unrelated acts grouped together, usually performed in a music hall or theater. It was a variety show. The format dominated early TV. The Ed Sullivan Show was a vaudeville. Was vaudeville come to TV? Saturday Night Live is a direct descendant. A typical vaudeville program included singers, both popular and classical, dancers, comedians, trained animals, magicians, jugglers, ventriloquists, lecturers, animal acts, and assorted others. The Coens were singers, jokers, and dancers. After a successful career on the vaudeville circuit, George M. Cohen came to Broadway in 1901. His shows included The Governor's Son, 45 Minutes from Broadway, The Talk of New York, Get Rich Quick Wallingford, Broadway Jones, Seven Keys to the Baldpate, The Tavern, The Song and Dance Man, and American Born. Among his best-known appearances were those in Awe Wilderness and I'd Rather Be Right. He is most famous today for songs he wrote. In fact, the songs are more famous than he is, including You're a Grand Old Flag, Mary's a Grand Old Name, Give My Regards to Broadway, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, and Over There, from World War I fame, for which Congress authorized and awarded him a special medal in 1940. Here's Over There, sung by James Cagney and Francis Langford. Perhaps more famous, or at least more often performed at Fourth of July celebrations by those who have forgotten Cohen himself is, You're a Grand Old Flag. article at Boston.com headlines, 
a gay feminist badass from Massachusetts wrote America the Beautiful. Well, whether or not she was a badass, Catherine Lee Bates, a professor at Wellesley College, was, indeed, an accomplished poet, social activist, and advocate for women's rights. Among Bates's many writings were poems, a young adult novel, other fiction, and assorted nonfiction in support of her many causes. An engaged social activist, Bates fought for women's rights, workers' rights, civil rights for people of color, tenement residents and immigrants, and poor people. A peace advocate, she fought for American entry into the League of Nations. Bates wrote America the Beautiful in the summer of 1893, sitting atop Pikes Peak. In Colorado, teaching English at Colorado College, Bates and a group hired a wagon to go to the peak. Tired when they got to the top, Bates was inspired by the view, saying all the wonder of America seemed displayed there. The poem was first published in the Congregationalist on Independence Day, 1895. The poem went through several iterations before its final version in 1911. It was also set to music by a number of composers, but the definitive version was an adaptation of an 1882 composition by Samuel A. Ward, the organist and choir director at Grace Church in Newark, New Jersey. As we have repeatedly seen, American history is more complex, more nuanced than many understand or want to understand. In this love song to America, Bates, the social activist, still manages to say, May God thy gold refine, till all success be nobleness, which, in the 1911 version, is a softening of her original 1893 version, which said, God shed his grace on thee, till selfish gain no longer stain the banner of the free. In her poem, Bates intuits that history is not a fixed thing. It evolves and changes, admits of improvement's possibility and prays for its attainment. As she wrote, God mend thy every flaw, confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law, so that America's success be nobleness and every gain divine. If people are discontented with the star-spangled banner as a national anthem, America the Beautiful is my candidate to replace it. A more beautiful song than the star-spangled banner, less militaristic in ego strutting, it sings of America in all its imperfect beauty, aspiring to be better. A mature lover, Bates sees the object of her love with all its flaws and all its beauty and seeing it whole, loves it all the more. A powerful version of America the Beautiful was performed by Ray Charles on the Dick Cavett Show in 1972. Here is Ray Charles doing America the Beautiful. America mm-hmm. 
singing something like this. Listen here. Oh, beautiful, far spacious skies, far amber waves of rain. far purple mountain majesties. the songs we've heard in this episode and last month in episode 11, we've heard the marvel and the beauty of America's diversity. The composers range from a descendant of the earliest English settlers to a 19th century Jewish immigrant, from a Portuguese immigrant son to the daughter of old line Yankees, from a descendant of enslaved African Americans to a Dust Bowl Oki who practically invented the genre of American folk troubadour singing songs of protest and love for the land of his birth. When we began this brief tour of American patriotic songs, I asked which of these songs to America describes it honestly and completely. None? All? Or all of them, but maybe none of them completely? One or two? Which? I'll argue all of them, but none of them completely. But, taken together, they sing of America, of thee I sing. The Star-Spangled Banner's first verse sings of America's resilience its gallant defense of the free and the brave, while its third verse unwittingly betrays one of its direst secrets, that the free did not include everyone. Still, its gallantry stirs the patriotic spirit, as does the invigorating tempo of the Washington Post march, which, devoid of lyrics, avoids all linguistic snares and historical call to sacks, and including its own teasingly commercial origins. Lift Every Voice and Sing shares with us the strength of those who overcame and labor still to complete freedom's journey. God Bless America shares an immigrant's joy, if perhaps too cloyingly, and this land is your land reminds us all that, indeed, we're all in this together, rich and poor, black, white, brown, and multi-hued, urban and rural, east and west, north and south. 
George M. Cohen's over there, and you're a grand old flag's exuberance remind us to recapture that American spirit of can do. Of them all, however, I think Catherine Lee Bates's, Boston.com's badass from Massachusetts, I think Catherine Lee Bates's America the Beautiful gets it mostly right. We're humans, and therefore any society we create will also be imperfect. But if we acknowledge that, work to correct our flaws in the spirit of mutual caring, and, while doing that, take the time to look up and note the beauty of the land we're fortunate enough to occupy, then, then we just might be able to fulfill freedom's promise, to lift our voices, to make this land, over which the flag still waves, everyone's land, crowning it with brotherhood, Mending every flaw and all our successes will be touched with nobleness from sea to shining sea. The American tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you.